This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Matthew Lutton is the Artistic Director of Malthouse Theatre and recently launched the 2018 season. It was a couple of weeks ago, but it means that people have had a chance to slip through the brochure and start planning their year in 2018. Matt, good to have you in. Thanks for having me. So how challenging is it to actually put an entire season of theatre together? <laughs> Talking to independent theatre makers, it's hard enough kind of writing, rehearsing and staging one work, let alone an entire season. Uh, look, it's a, it's a big juggling act. I mean, there's a huge amount of pleasure in putting together the conversations with so many artists is, is uh, in, incredible. And then there's this heartbreaking process of having to say uh, no to more projects than, um, than yes. Uh, but it's also very exciting just watching uh, the threads of all the shows start to come together and working with a whole range of directors and writers and sort of casting their works. So um, the curation process is thrilling, but also it's just a... It's a juggling out between the logistics of what we want to create, the audiences we want to see and, and who we're in conversation with. And also imagine I uh, would think a juggling act between your own interests and aesthetic and your awareness that you uh, you can't just program for yourself. You have to program uh, to reflect the Malthouse audience, the, the, the Malthouse audience of the future that you want to bring into the building. So there's there's a hell of a lot of balls in the air. Yeah, I mean, you're constantly, I mean, you can't just as an artistic director sort of program just your, you know, your 12 favourite shows. It doesn't sort of quite work like that, I, even though they I are all of, my favourites. I would <laughs> kind of like to see a program just once, just to see, kind of like, I know, you don't have to actually program it, you could just draft it and email it. <laughs> It's kind of like secret program. Yeah, um, <laughs> I might do that. Um, how how would it differ? Um, look, probably. I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment. It might not differ very much at all. I mean, I think in some ways I'm uh, juggling my own sort of passions and interests in the work and how I position myself as an audience member watching uh, the works we're seeing and aware of the different types of audiences I'd like to invite into the Malthouse and aware that there's shows that um, I would deep, you know, there's, yeah, but basically aware that, you know, we have a lot of different audiences at the Malthouse and some are consuming theatre on a weekly basis and seeing theatre all the time and they're constantly interested in work that's going to provoke form and really push the art form and other audience members are sort of you know are looking for uh narratives subverted in different ways and only going to be seeing two or three shows a year and have quite different expectations so it's sort of trying to make place where they can all come together yeah well the the malthouse bar certainly serves that function (laughs) so now uh the season opens with uh, a remount of Picnic at Hanging Rock, which was a very successful and very mm. popular show. Uh, so being restaged in Melbourne before it then goes off to London. That's right. So, we're, yeah, we're bringing it back in the sense of, I mean, it's exciting to br- start building a repertoire as a company of works that we can see um, not just once. I think there's always a thing with theatre that after um, uh, three or four weeks on the stage, it disappears and never returns sometimes. Uh, but it was also really exciting that uh, I think uh, to keep going back to those Australian classics and looking at different aesthetics, different ways uh, to present them and tell those myths. Um, it was really exciting to see an audience sort of screaming out loud and that when we were doing the Picnic Hang Rock two years ago. So we want to give that experience again. <laughs> I am glad that it's coming back because, as you say, it's so rare that new Australian works in particular have a chance to, to enter the canon because essentially they're, they're staged once, they're often forgotten unless they then get perhaps picked up by another company uh, and programmed somewhere, say, at Belvoir the following year or something like that. Um, so for you as a director, given that this is one of the shows you directed mm. and uh, working with playwright Tom Wright, who you have a, a bit of a, an ongoing collaboration with now, does it mean that you also then get the chance to 
uh, tweak and tinker the work and do things that perhaps you only became aware of needed to be done towards the end of its original season. Yeah, absolutely. And we've been doing it... Um, there's been two other seasons. There was a season in Perth after it played in Melbourne and a season in Edinburgh. And every time I've gone back and made tweaks and changes. And, and I've already got a list of things I want to make small changes for when it plays in Melbourne. So, th- But that's it's always about having distance from the work uh, and feeling the audience's response to the work. And you can start to... Particularly in Hanging Rock, where, uh, where the tension and the terror ebbs and flows and how do we can amplify that further and and when you know you want the work to slightly be obscure and when you want it to be incredibly legible and getting that balance right how does a work become canonical um i think uh it's a good question i think works become canonical when there's no definitive way to tell them when they turn into myths like what i love about picnic hang rock is of course there's this rubber with the piece that you expect um, you know, the Peter Weir film has made us imagine that that story all is about incredible dappled light and white dresses ascending a sun-bleached uh, landscape. Uh, and that's one very true aesthetic for the show. But also it's a show about and a story about vanishing and darkness and what lurks in the shadows. And obviously we've created a, a version that's much less about, that, more about that. It's more about the fear of darkness um, and a darkness in colonialism and, and gothicness. Uh, so what I love about, I think, canonical, canonical work is the work that you can start to say, well, uh, we can reimagine that myth in many different ways. Uh, there's not one definitive uh, defining vision of it. Now, if we're talking about reimagining, uh, a couple of the works that are in season 2018 for the Malthouse are reimagining existing, mm. uh, in the case of Melancholia, a film, in the case of Bliss, uh, a Peter Carey novel. Yes, yeah. There's a, I think there's a great joy in uh, looking back, I mean, particularly for something like Bliss, looking back at a piece, a story that's set in the 80s um, or, and written around then uh, and sort of saying how... How have things changed? You know, what has happened in the intervening years between Peter Carey's prophetic world um, of, you know, a, a family and an advertising executive who thinks they're in hell um, and their relationship to America and disease and, and drugs and mental health and sort of looking at uh, the world that he created and where we are now. And it's, they're different worlds, but uh, it's good to reflect on what's changed in the last 30 years. Uh, there's a, a nice parallel, perhaps, between staging Bliss and the the relatively recent production of uh, of Away, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of period, looking at period, looking at how our awareness of a particular decade has changed with the the distance of time. Well, exactly, and I find it really um, like with Away. I find it really exciting to look back and give authority to our stories from the past and what they expose about where we've ended up now, um, and also particularly. A, a, approaching them without nostalgia. I think uh, a, a lot of these stories for me and my colleagues are not stories that we experienced the first time round. You know, Bliss was published the year I was born. Away was, you know, like Away is a story set in the era of my parents growing up. And so my response to them is to not, I don't get caught in the nostalgia of what the experience was for me. I get sort of more interested in what it, in scrutinising it really and seeing it for all its. Um, the, the flaws, but also seeing it and for all its beauty and grace and the things perhaps we need more of in the world at the moment. What about a play like Sarah Kane's Blasted, which has also been programmed for 2018, which has become canonical in its own way and is kind of this archetypal uh, piece of uh, bold feminist theatre, mm. transgressive, challenging, which has become a landmark of its own, but a modern landmark. How do you approach that 
kind of how do you navigate restaging a work like that? Um, I mean, uh, Anne Louise Sachs, who's directing Blasted, has got a great challenge because the work has a reputation for being shocking and sort of, um, you know, really confronting an audience with its, underst- with its sense of violence. Um, and in some ways I think you have to acknowledge the sensationalism around the work and then make sure that you don't get caught up in it. So, you know, it, this is, you know, it is a terrifying piece of writing, but that's because it's about the terrors of war and what happens when that war... Well, I mean, the horrors, I mean, it's, it's horrors that we're seeing happen in Manus Island in the last 48 hours are happening right on our doorstep. And But what happens when there's a distance between you and it and uh, how whether you act or not and how you respond to that distance and what happens if that horror actually in, comes into your own personal space. So I think it's... Uh, if the production can uh, negotiate all the the politics in many ways that Sarah Kane was writing about, uh, then I think the piece uh, deserves. You know, uh, we understand wh- why it um, ventures into extreme territory and doesn't just become a sensational piece of theatre. Now, if you mentioned Manus Island, uh, which is a nice segue into working with Belarus Free Theatre, mm. who are a fascinating company, company making important work and provocative work. Uh, and when I first heard about the relationship between Malthouse and Belarus Free Theatre, uh, I believe you were taking the members of the company to detention centres in Australia so that they could start to interrogate Australia's uh, policies rather than just the policies of, of uh, their own country. That's right. I mean, the project has been going on for two years, maybe even a little bit longer, where um, the founders of Belarus Free Theatre, Natalia and Nikolai, um, essentially start their own, they make their own projects, but they're also working with many companies around the world um, to make work with artists from those countries about uh, about being proactive, about speaking out about oppression, essentially. Um, and uh, there was a research trip. There was a uh, to, to various dissenters, but also up to Beswick and moving around different parts of the country, which was about sort of um, those artists from Belarus Free Theatre collecting stories and experiences and the actors themselves who have to bring a lot of personal history to the work, uh, unpacking their own sort of taboos and the things that they feel like in their own lives and own family histories haven't been able to um, speak about. I'll be really intrigued to see what the public response to the work is, given that uh, particularly white Australian audiences have been uh, at festivals and outside of festivals have been uh, very admiring of uh, Belarus Free Theatre for criticising um, issues around freedom of speech and uh, and oppression and so on, uh, when it's... They're very comfortable with it when they're talking about what's going on in Europe, for yes. example. Will they be as comfortable when it's t- uh, criticising their own country? Well, well, that's... I mean, that's part of the provocation of the work is we're not going to be able to talk about... We're talking about what's happening in our own backyard. Uh, and it is massively talking about censorship and what that relationship to censorship is in Australia and do we censor ourselves or not? Is there a process of self-censorship? How do we deal with our own isolation? Um, and, you know, and what I think Belarus Free Theatre are very good at doing is asking quite piercing questions. They're quite provocative in coming in and uh, sensing when a room is squirming uh, and saying, let's talk about that because clearly there's something that needs to be unpacked here and trying to do it obviously in a sensitive and respectful way um, but at the same time uh, not looking away from it. 
So we're getting two works from Belarus Free Theatre next year, Trustees, which is the new work that's been uh, mm. developed in collaboration with Malthouse, uh, and also staging Generation Genes, which is a work referencing the fact that in uh, in Belarus, in what I think the under the, the early communist era, uh, wearing jeans and listening to rock music would get you thrown straight into jail. It did, and, and therefore jeans became a commodity. It became an underground market for selling jeans in the, you know, um, um, in, yeah, in the black market. And um, so this is, uh, why, this is Nikolai's story. So we thought there's a way to... Um, because the work they're making with Malthouse trustees won't be about Belarus at all. It doesn't cover the Belarus history. Uh, we thought to provide some context to who this company is, if you haven't seen their work, is to hear uh, Generation Genes, which is Nikolai's personal story of his incarceration in Belarus. So this is his story of engaging with the, the trade of genes, um, and which resulted in him uh, uh, yeah, being uh, arrested and having quite horrific experiences, but also meeting the love of his life while incarceration. Um, and their sort of uh, refugee, their flight, fl- a flight from Belarus. Now, it's starting to sound like uh, the Malthouse season 2018 is fairly dark and fairly provocative. <laughs> there is, of course, comedy in the mix as well. The production Fleabag, which has been doing the, the international kind of fringe festival mm. circuit and comedy circuit. Uh, you've programmed Fleabag, and I presume it's uh, on as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival next year. Yeah, this it is. I mean, there's, there's actually, <laughs> it does sound like a really dark season, but there's also a lot of entertainment and comedy um, to back it up. But Fleabag is that sort of master uh, solo um, comedy work. So this is a piece that has um, also sp- uh, created the BBC uh, TV series of the same name. Um, but it's a piece where she's just an incredible st- anecdote. Just- she tells those incredible anecdotes of embarrassing situations. Um, so I think it's something that we felt like is a, a masterpiece of a sort of solo, solo comedy show. And if we're also talking about solo comedy, uh, Good Muslim Boy, uh, written and performed by Osama Sami, which is both poignant and very, very funny by all accounts, and a great way to reflect on contemporary Australia and contemporary Australian identity. Yeah, this is Osama's this is, um, true story about... Sort of cultural crossroads and uh, you might know Osama from Ali's Wedding and so Ali's Wedding um, was recently you know been a lot of cinemas and a huge hit where it's unpacking a whole lot of uh, a lot of of ideas of culture but at the same time incredibly funny and almost a satire of culture in Australia and so this is uh, Osama's story of when he was returning to Iran with his father uh, and his father on that trip uh, passed away and the difficulty this almost absurd black comedy of trying to get his father's body back on the plane and get his body back to Australia. Now, in terms of other new Australian works, one of the things that the Malthouse has become perhaps synonymous over the last couple of years is its presentation of Indigenous stories and Indigenous works. How is that aspect of programming reflected in 2018? Um, In 2018, there's two works led by Indigenous artists. Um, uh, We're really thrilled that uh, Jada Alberts is rejoining us. uh, Jada was performing a few years ago in the um, Shadow King at Malthouse Theatre, but is also an extraordinary playwright. Um, And her work, Brothers Wreck, which was originally premiered at Belvoir Street about four years ago, is I think one of the most moving uh, family portraits that we've seen written for the Australian stage in over a decade. Um, and, And Jada's also been moving into directing. So this is uh, Jada coming to the Malt House to do a, another production of her own play, Brothers Wreck, in our, in our main theatre. 
And there's also a work which is uh, Nakia Louis, <laughs> uh, kind of informed by the the kind of uh, black exploitation films of the seventies, I believe. Yeah, there's a very raucous work that Nakia Louis is right, are making. It's sort of a live animation work made with Oh Yeah Wow on Animation Studio in Melbourne, uh, and it's a superhero work. It's about um, a, a archaeologist called uh, Jacqueline Brown, who when she digs up a mystical skull, uh, turns into Jackie Jackie Brown, um, Blacky Blacky Brown, <laughs> um, and Blacky Blacky Brown. Uh, decides that she will start to hunt down all the ancestors uh, of the colonisers that killed her families and bring revenge. Uh, and hence we move into a sort of, yeah, bloody exploitation live animation on stage with Ash Flanders and Megan, um, uh, and... Uh, it's Nakia, Nakia from Black Comedy. It's an incredibly subversive political work that's sort of unpacking how do we deal with uh, revenge for the past. I can't wait to see that one. <laughs> I'm talking with Matt Lutton, the artistic director of Malthouse Theatre, about the the Malthouse 2018 season. You can jump online at malthousetheatre.com.au for more info or pick up a, a brochure kind of uh, at your usual bookstores and cafes and, and the likes. Matt, just before I let you go, you mentioned Belvoir a moment ago. I wanted to ask about what... I've what has really felt like a, a bit of a shift in the the theatre landscape in Australia, with um, essentially a new generation of younger artistic directors coming in. So we've got Claire over at Black Swan, we've got uh, Eamon at Belvoir, we've got Sam up at Queensland Theatre, um, we've got Kip uh, at STC, and yourself at Malthouse. To what degree does having kind of uh, younger blood, younger ideas coming in to the cultural landscape shift theatre in Australia and how valuable is it to have peers and colleagues which you, who you can collaborate with at the, the companies around the country regardless of their age or generation? Oh, it, it, I think the conversation between artistic directors is incredibly valuable. I mean, it's amazing having friends and colleagues in those roles so that the conversation is very honest and very transparent. Um, it means a lot of us have uh, experience from the independent sector and direct have worked in outside the main stage companies. So I think all of our relationships to local artists and independent artists, therefore, is quite deep. And we're sort of very, you know, constantly trying to find ways that all our organisations can be porous and engage with the independent sector. Um, but it's also, I think, has an interesting relationship to um, classics and older stories. Like, not only are we... Uh, thinking about all the new writers uh, around us uh, to be sort of commissioning and bringing their new stories to the stage. But I think there's a sparking an interest in uh, the stories that we haven't seen on stage um, because we're a younger generation and wanting to go back and re-explore those, that canon. I look forward to seeing the uh, the fruits of those conversations over the coming years, but I'm also very much looking forward to seeing, I think, pretty much everything at Malthouse <laughs> in 2018. If you want more information about the uh, the productions we've been talking about, malthousetheatre.com.au. My guest has been Matt Lutton, Artistic Director of the Malthouse Theatre. Thanks for coming in. Thank you.
Antonella Casella joins us from Circus Oz and uh, Jared Dewey is a circus performer, not from Circus Oz, but from an event that Circus Oz is presenting, Side, so- Side Salt at the Melba, a festival of experimental circus. Welcome to you both. Hey. Hi. Antonella, why do we need a festival of experimental circus? Isn't there just enough regular circus all year round to keep us happy? No, definitely not. I mean, the thing is, circus as an art form has just limitless potential. You know, you can you can make circus that's a musical. You can make circus that's completely edgy and feels like a contemporary dance piece and pretty much anywhere in between. And I think, though, that what is happening nationally is that we're not seeing that incredible broad range of circus being programmed. And so this festival is really about looking for the work that's really different, really interesting, trying new ways of using circus as a tool for creative expression and and putting it on stage so people can see what's possible. As opposed to kind of trick applause, trick applause um, in, a, in a kind of, what, unimaginative or...? Formulaic, I would use. Like, you know, that cir- circus has always kind of had an episodic nature. It, um, uh, an act, the act has a build. You, fin- you start with your second biggest trick, you finish on your biggest trick, and that's kind of like... You know the traditional circus. Giving away format. the secrets. Jack. Yeah. Oh my god! Please, everyone. <laughs> shh. <laughs> but um, so kind of breaking that down, and I think that really comes from exploring what circus can do. And circus is like a sponge, and it can like soak up anything. Like it can soak up music, it can soak up performance, it can soak up dance, it can soak up drag. Like it can really take on a lot of different formats, which kind of elevates it. Um, so I guess prying into that, trying to find out what circus can do and having a platform like the Side Salt program is just ideal. Um, I think, can I just add, I think it's really important to sort of say that there is a lot of amazing, beautiful contemporary circus in Australia. Absolutely. We're not um, dissing it. We're not dissing contemporary <laughs> circus. But we are pointing out the fact that there's not a lot, a lot of opportunity to, to craft the work so that it is deepened as well as broadened in terms of its artistic ambition. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think a lot of the work is falling into, you know, uh, um, some very... Uh, similar categories in Australia, the kind of cabaret-based format, which we see a lot, which is incredibly successful in the fringe circuit, and the sort of incredibly beautiful poetic acrobat as metaphor for the human experience Mm. kind of work that you see companies like Circa and Cassis do so beautifully. I think they're two extraordinary ways to make circus, but there are many, many more and I want to see those being explored. And something that you and I have talked about previously uh, for a feature I published on Arts Hub a couple of weeks ago, looking at the evolution of circus, particularly in Brisbane in that instance, the fact that uh, funding opportunities for circus artists are limited. Um, they often fall between the gaps, so they're not dance, they're not theatre, uh, and it means that without funding to create more artistically um, uh, kind of adventurous work, people are forced to go, right, I have to make um, an easily tourable, commercially uh, viable and commercially attractive show to make my money back on the Fringe Festival circuit. Um, and so that, again, also restricts the growth of the art form because it just means that people are going, this is the kind of show that works at the Adelaide Fringe, Fringe World, uh, Comedy Festival, Melbourne Fringe, Sydney Fringe, etc. I'll make that kind of show and it stunts your artistic growth. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I do agree to that to an extent. Um, it's 
I, what I find really interesting are the audience that do go to see circus and what they expect from a circus show. So you would maybe, like, take your kids to see a circus show, but, you know, we have, like, uh, works out there that are quite adult, not saying that they're, uh, you know, uh, risque or anything like that, but actually the themes within the show might be aligned to some kind of deep philosophical ideas. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I think I just went on a tangent there and That's lost. Okay. <laughs> so what well, I think what, Jared, what the work that you're presenting is a really interesting sort of example of, you know, what Side Soul at the Melbourne is trying to do. So, um, Richard, did I just jump in on your question? <laughs> That's totally fine. It's totally... But I, <laughs> Keep, keep asking because I'm, I, I was just about to segue into – you just mentioned philosophical themes, Jared. so I'm yep. wondering what you are exploring in the work which is called Party Ghost, presented by <laughs> Poached Eggs and Asparagus. Yes, yes. Um, so basically uh, Olivia and I are both very interested in movement, very interested in clown and very interested in um, death. <laughs> um, and what that really means is um, I guess – we were trying to find an idea of celebrating death kind of in a cartoony format so but like like a a dark cartoon so you're getting transported into the afterlife where it's a a macabre take on a birthday party um we're currently in development of the show so like it's still being made and you know the ideas that we might have started with are transforming and going to other places but um, yeah, it's one of the things I love about an artistic development is that the idea you start with <laughs> maybe nothing like the idea that you end up with, and uh, it's occasionally fascinating to see in the likes of the comedy festival, the fringe festival, people register their shows six months in advance. Yeah. By the time they come to stage, the title bears no resemblance <laughs> and the blurb in the program bears yeah. no resemblance to what they're going to see. So yeah. it's hard to ask you to talk about a show that yeah. is still being made. Yeah. At a very delicate point in yeah. the proceedings because it's going to be a premiere yeah. of a new work, you know. And the reason that Jared and Olivia's work was selected, it was probably the least known of the works that, <laughs> that, that we selected for the... Pro, for the program, but we didn't hesitate in selecting it because both Jared and Olivia have such an incredible track record of using the art form in very eclectic, unique, eccentric ways, and but different, quite different. They're quite different artists, and so to see them both together in the same work is really interesting. Now, I wanted to ask something, Antonella, of you, particularly about the, the fact that, as we've said, Side Salt at the Melbourne is billed as a festival of experimental circus. Now, in theatre, experimental theatre uh, is a phrase that w- will actually put some people off. They'll go, I don't want to see experimental theatre. Someone's going to kind of like ululate wildly <laughs> for 27 <laughs> minutes while breaking eggs on themselves and rolling in the dirt and occasionally interspersing it with quotes from Beckett. Um <laughs> You've been I in the rehearsal. I enjoy that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being flippant, but uh, the the idea of experimentation. Uh, what do we mean by that when it comes to circus? Is this an opportunity to evolve the art form and to genuinely make something new, challenging, provocative with circus, or is this more a festival about experimenting with what people think circus is? rather than trying to make something entirely new? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, 
actually, I don't. I mean, the beauty of circus is it's very hard to be boring with circus, to be <laughs> honest. Because at the end of the day, especially when you're dealing with professional artists who you know spend their lives making world class touring circus work, you know, at the core of all of these pieces is amazing circus skills. So you're just going to get that anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In circus. Um, And then I think what it's about is looking at the way you can... I think, what was the word you used, Jared, about it can soak up? Circus can soak up other other ways of... So, you know, you could have... We don't have in this particular festival, but you could take... You know, I always wanted to take Beckett's Waiting for Godot and turn (laughs) it into a circus show. I mean, you can't do that mainly because of the strict copyright um, around... Give it another couple of years. (laughs) (laughs) Open... The copyright will expire. You know, so you can literally think about, you know, in terms of dramaturgy, in terms of text and the type of text. You could use poetry. You could use, you know, beginning, middle, end narrative play. You could use, um, you can use opera, you can use, I mean, really, there's no art form that you couldn't dovetail with circus to make something really fascinating and beautiful that's also interesting and challenging theme-wise. And I think, you know, I mean, look at some of the other shows in the program. I mean, you know, Relax, Everything's Fucked is basically, you know, it's almost using traditional agitprop political theatre and combining it with total gross-out contemporary sideshow... To make something completely new that's absolutely great fun but also really challenging in terms of what it's saying about contemporary society. And that kind of agitprop stuff that Captain Ruin has been doing for years. Yeah. I saw an early show of his <laughs> at uh, Bar Open on Brunswick Street which involved someone shitting into a saucepan at one point <laughs> as a commentary on um, the way that consumer culture chews people up and shits them out. So yeah. anything is possible. Yes, we, we're not... There's no, uh, there's no mediation of the content inside salt that's for sure i don't think there's anything quite like that I don't think, though but it is interesting never say never. yeah never say never <laughs> mitch will probably bring that back out now but you know since then mitch has been you know he's been emceeing shows at Glas- glastonbury festival he's been really he's been fine tuning that notion of how do you combine populist political theater with really you know edgy getting an audience in a frenzy sideshow and some of the other works that are being presented as part of the Circus Oz Side Salt at the Melba, a festival of experimental circus, to give it its full name. <laughs> um, Tumble Circus, who... Now, this is a Australian-Irish kind of, like, weird intermingling of artists. Is that right? Weird? Not so much, but, yeah. <laughs> it, it is... So it's an Irish company, Tumble Circus, and actually, just as a little side note, one of the main artists just won Best Director at the uh, Los, Angel- Los Angeles Experimental Film Festival for a film he's made based on the story of a circus company called the Pitt Family Circus, who you might yeah. know, who are also yeah. an Australian company. So, so there's Ken and Tina, who are the core artists from Ireland of Tumble Circus, and they've been collaborating with Angelique, who is an Australian circus artist who, since she graduated from NICA, has been working with companies like um, No Fit no Stage, yeah. uh, travelling in sort of really big, beautiful, poetic circus in Europe. And, yeah, they've been collaborating on this show. Yeah, she's gorgeous, gorgeous performer. We've also got Time in Space Circus presenting non-stop uh, and the image for that alone is kind of intrigues me automatically. It's, it's Everything else is quite bright and colourful and this is a very kind of dark, kind of it could almost be an indie band photo <laughs> were it not for the fact that somebody is standing on somebody else's shoulders, which you don't get a lot in indie band photos. Um, that is 
is a very good perception because they are like the circus version of a young indie band in a way. They're basically young emerging artists from Adelaide and they're all incredible acrobats. I don't know if if the Triple R audience knows what tricking is. Jared, can, do you oh, want to describe look, tricking? Look, I'm not in any place. <laughs> that's, like, that's for the cool kids. I'm a... <laughs> But basically, I think tricking's more aligned to, like, parkour, right? Yeah, it's like a street style of tumbling. It's basically young kids chucking acrobatic tricks and taking them to sort of extremes as they can invent them. Sounds fantastic. And and, and combining that into a circus show. Yeah. And are those... They're from Sir Kids, right? From Adelaide. Oh, okay. Sir Kids, for people who don't know it, is the youth circus school and training facility uh, for circus artists in Adelaide, which has been around for years and, amongst other things, has given birth to Gravity and Other Myths, who were just in town at Melbourne Festival with Backbone. So, um, yeah, great. Sir Kids do awesome stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm a Sir Kid. Proud. (laughs) back to Adelaide Pride. <laughs> uh, so, look, there's a, we, I'm not going to have time to talk about every single show in detail, but Side Salt at the Melba, a festival of experimental circus, is running from the 8th to the 18th of November. If you jump on www.circusoz.com, you can find out all the details and the dates and the times of the, of the shows and all the artists involved. It sounds like it's going to be great fun. It is. And there's a bar as well. So you can hang out at the bar and discuss the art form in between seeing the shows. Which I like the way that's staggered like that. You can see, turn up for an early show, have a drink in between, chat to people, see the next show and actually, actually as you say, actually talk about the art form and how it's evolving and what how it's... So I am imagining a lot of circus artists will come to this, but then hopefully a lot of the general public who, who just want to see something new and different with circus rather than, I don't know, some touring international kind of... <laughs> Euro pudding juggernaut of circus that might be coming our way. Um, <laughs> Very well said. Uh, so, at those details again uh, the Circus Oz Side Salt at the Melbourne, a festival of experimental circus from the 8th to the 18th of November at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent, 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood. Uh, you can book through trybooking.com or just go to www.circusoz.com for more info. Uh, Antonella and Jared, thanks heaps for coming in. Thank you so Thank much. You. My next guest has joined us in joined us in the studio. Tiffany Bishop is here to chat about the art of conversation, which is not about the art of conversation. It's actually an exhibition which is happening at 45 downstairs. It's a collaborative exhibition featuring artists from the Artist Run Initiative or ARI as it's known, TBC. Uh, and what's partic- what caught my eye about this exhibition is that it's not just an exhibition that you go in and look at. There is an app involved. So technology meets art in a collaborative hybrid at 45 Downstairs. Tiffany, tell us more. Yeah, and it actually it is kind of still a conversation, even though it's visual art on a wall. We wanted to play with that kind of paradox a bit because you actually scan the image with an app that you download on the spot and you have a conversation. 
So you're asked a question and you respond to it and then you get a response. And we initially did the work using the old kind of QR code technology and we actually were selected for an Emerging Art Award in Washington, D.C. and we took the work there and we had such an interesting reaction to it that we wanted to um, bring it into a more contemporary context and we knew it was kind of the beginning of more so we were really happy to play with it again. So we had a guy in Taiwan that we know um, help us with the back end and you literally scan now a beautiful image and that takes you into the the back end of the app and the engagement and the conversation. I love the idea because it's a conversation on multiple levels then. So it's a conversation between artist and audience. It's a conversation utilising technology in the way that we all now... I mean, I found myself kind of uh, having a... uh, a, a conversation on uh, with my phone, kind of using an app with somebody in France that I needed to ask a couple of questions of, who was then showing me around her, her kind of uh, the the place she was holidaying in and the, the view from the balcony. I'm going, this is just bizarre and strange that technology allows us to do this. But it's also a conversation between organisations as well, yeah. between yeah. Uh, between TBC and Forty Five. Yeah. So it's kind and of it's very colloquial, so it's quite relaxed. And in fact, the artwork has imprinted in the background at seven point in text font the instructions on how to play it. So there is a dialogue literally embedded in the work and the dialogue then that idea then spurred another idea and we decided to get all the young members of TBC to tell us what it was like to collaborate to make works like this and then there's a series of 15 works that have minute embedded text in them that you initially look from a distance and think they might be a barcode Some of them have images over them to draw you in as well, but essentially it's dialogue-based, so it's a text-based visual exhibition. There seems to be a real resurgence of text-based art at the moment as well. Why do you think that is? I think it's about conversations. It's about bringing the dialogue into into the gallery. And for us, it's about emancipating and bringing status to young artists and that's the whole premise behind TBC and it's about giving them real um, artistic experiences in those professional contexts, not just their school classroom context or a youth club or a workshop context. So we really wanted to have literal conversations about that lack of status in those special places. Talk to us more then uh, about uh, TBC as an organisation. I'm smiling because TBC has closed this week after 10 years and that's a bittersweet experience. We're actually a really successful, um, I think we're quite different and many people have told us we are. However, we struggle with the funding model and I was listening to the interview with um, Esther from NAVA and some of it was so ringing true and it's ringing true for us all. There's nothing new about it. We're not suffering any, you know, worse than anyone else. But we want to find an economic model around what we do and we've struggled to find that, mainly because young people can never pay fees and the ones we want are the least likely to be able to pay fees. Um, So we now believe that there may be some merit in archiving our project and spending some time building a visual and digital and even sound-based and obviously visual-based, archive of the last 10 years because there's some really important stuff to tell people that might not have come in contact with us. Being an outer suburban project, we're less connected to the city. Sometimes we feel a little bit isolated and disconnected. It's one of the things that I've been aware of for years, going back to the early noughties when I worked at the youth arts organisation Express Media, that there is 
perhaps more support and more awareness of the challenges for artists living regionally yeah. than there is for those on the urban fringes and the outer suburbs. The inner city has its own life, the, the regional sector has its own life, but that kind of outer band, whether it be... Um, uh, kind of like a, a, a youth theatre company, dance, visual arts and so on. There seems to be a, a real kind of a real challenge there, which is continuing. Yeah, and we're two Ks out of regional, so we miss all those opportunities. We actually present uh, produced a magazine that you might have even been ex- at Express Media at when we presented it. It was called Hoodie Mag, and it was selected by Express Media as the best new publication. We didn't win that award, but we were ecstatic that we were included. We then got um, nominated by the Australian Business Design, ABDA or whatever it's called, for Best New um, Design Publication. So we've just launched Hoodie Number 2. Hoodie may have another life because we might find an economic model around it, which is probably easier to find than an expensive gallery model or even our street art model or our um, digital work model. But, um, yeah, we found that those kids out in that those outer areas have um, less inclination to come into the city they really want to base their practices in their hometowns and um, we found that Belgrave was a fantastic location because it was at the end of line end of a train line uh, we've just kind of developed over the last five years a really really kind of burgeoning street art project out there and it will that continue now that the organization kind of I'd like no it more? to I'd like it to there is some impediments that we're facing there with um, what people can handle. It is a back lane and we think that text, graph and writing should be allowed. We have some people wanting murals only. So we're having, I mean, the problem with that is that the kids that we're engaging don't do that kind of work. But when we engage them, they stop tagging the lane. So it's a real quid pro quo. It's if you let us have our head here, we can solve some problems and engage the kids that are actually causing you some grief. And, And to jump in, it also then reflects the fact that uh, the language and the style and the form that young people are working in, you can't kind of try to take them out of that and put them into a completely different form and expect them to stay engaged. You have no. to work with them on their terms, yep. in their languages and their their styles. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, and the interesting thing is it's the least costly project we've ever run. It's a few cans and, um, you know, we do the... We clean the lane up ourselves beforehand. Um, we have people of all ages walking down raving about even the unreadable works. They said, but it's better than what was here before and it's better than the crime that was here before and... So, look, it's a conundrum. We're facing interesting challenges and whilst we're closing, it's almost like we're closing so that we can actually reboot or maybe someone says, please, can I help? Or, you know, there's that also that corporate social kind of area we're looking at at the moment and how we might be able to sort of buddy up with someone like that it's not an expensive project we work on the smell of an oily rag but we need the smell of an oily rag (laughs) (laughs) tiffany if somebody listening is uh going well i want to have kind of it sounds these sounds like like uh projects that have value that have merit that have creative outcomes clearly as well and they want to maybe get in touch and say maybe we can work something out how do they get in touch well we're tbcaustralia.org and we're also on Instagram as that, which is very visual, so you can get an instant hit about how we operate and what we do there. Um, I must say that we've had 10 beautiful years of um, funding from our local council, which um, 
I think we're at the end of that relationship because those relationships don't last forever. No, and councils else, come up with yeah, kind of new agendas and, the money priorities. and It's sort of a bit of a conundrum because you shouldn't really burn the people out who are doing the good work, but it's also there needs to be room for others, yeah. which is why we're looking at a social enterprise or a corporate social outreach partnership or an economic model. And those three of those things are very hard to find, particularly when you're working with young people who aren't the source of that financial support. And neither should they be. To come back to the Art of Conversation, which is uh, on now at 45 downstairs uh, until the 25th of November, uh, it strikes me as a great opportunity for people to who aren't familiar with the work of uh, uh, TBC to come along, see the work, interact with it through the app, get a sense of the, the playful, exploratory, questioning kind of advancement of language and form and style. So as, as you said earlier, these are not just paintings on the wall. No, no, no. And you'll also find Hoodie Mag number two there, which is the launch of that. So you can take something away for free as well. So uh, The Art of Conversation is on at 45 downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne, uh, as I said, until the 25th of November. Uh, The gallery is open Tuesday to Friday, 11am to 5pm, Saturdays from midday until 4pm, and more info at 45downstairs.com. And if you want more info about TBC, it was tbcaustralia.org. I've been chatting with Tiffany Bishop. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.